destruction, temporary respite from global chaos and despair. The world burns. Take my hand and leap into an ocean of pure bliss. Hush, 
Subdued, I rush to gamble my lover's every limb for tonight's charred silver lush. Hurl on the waltzers till you're drunk on your own puke. Ringmaster salivates amyl nitrate over weeping welts and blood-stained boots. His black heart dilates in the iris of the teller. His hand is always flush. Take a ride on the carousel and the ringmaster takes a ride as well. has always been able to move things with his mind. Back when he was young, it had taken a lot of effort, requiring high concentration and a fixed stare, just to give a shopping list on the table in front of him a light nudge. However, it had become easier with practice, and as he grew older, he was able to make breakfast while sitting in a chair, scrolling through various news feeds, his thoughts divided between photos of his friends and the choreography of kitchen utensils buttering his toast and stirring his coffee. His kinetic abilities were not only convenient, every toilet had a non-touch flush and every spat piece of chewing gum landed squarely in the bin, but they also gave him the sense of being the master of his own universe, a feeling of complete control. His parents privately cursed his ability as they watched him grow arrogant through his teenage years. They only hoped it wouldn't be a violent knock that would shake him from certainty's grip. Recently, there's been a change in Gary. For a few weeks now, he's woken each morning, gone into the kitchen as usual, but instead of making his breakfast from his chair, he simply sits and stares at the crockery, not able to find the motivation to move them. Distractedly, he scores the screen of his phone with his eyes before leaving the house without eating a thing. He has also started dreaming about the kettle. In these dreams, his limbs are being moved by the desires of the electrical appliance. His hand lifted to his face to scratch his nose. His ankle tensed and released, tapping his foot. The experience of his movements being beyond his control brings him extreme pleasure. He often awakes with an erection and a deep sense of loss on realisation that it is not real. After waking from a particularly intense dream, he sits in the kitchen and eyes his belongings with a suspicious gaze. He drags a teaspoon slowly across the work surface, pausing at the edge before giving it a push so that it tips and falls to the floor. A test. He feels nothing. Rocking the bin now, building up a swing back and forth until it tips. Potato peelings and tea bags scatter a line from its open mouth. Eyes back at the kettle. Still nothing. One by one, he flings open the cupboard doors, sliding bowls and plates and cups towards him so that they tumble out in a waterfall. Clouds of ceramic spray fill the air as his hands grip the arms of his chair, challenging the fucking kettle to step up. He's clutching the pepper grinder with his mind, focusing his attention on its curves, feeling its weight, getting close to the point of lifting it so that it shudders as if there were a tremor in the ground. And as he holds it there tight with his gaze, he begs it to resist him, to disobey him, to push back. Gary is desperate to feel something. He slumps in his chair, releasing the pepper grinder so that it wobbles back into stillness. Gary feels entirely alone. 
Snot dribbles a line from his nose to his upper lip, and his eyes are bloodshot and wet. His thin, underused arms fall by his sides, and he suddenly feels exposed sitting there in his dressing gown. My beloved in God, greetings. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, I am Mrs. Christabel Horst from Germany, a widow to late Dr. A. Horst. I am 51 years old and a converted born-again Christian, suffering from long-time cancer of the breast. From all indication, my condition is really deteriorating and it is quite obvious that I might not live more than two, numeral two months, according to my doctor, because the cancer has gotten to a very worst slash dangerous stage. My late husband and my only child died last five years ago. His death was politically motivated. My late husband was a very rich and wealthy oil businessman who was running his oil, gold slash diamond business here in West Africa. After his death, I inherited all his business and wealth. My doctors has advised me that I may not live for more than two, numeral two, months. So I now decided to divide the part of this wealth to contribute to the development of the church in Africa, America, Asia, and Europe. I collected your email address during my desperate search on the internet, and I prayed over it. I decided to donate the sum of 7500000.00 USD, 7,500,000 US dollars, to the less privileged, because I cannot take this money to the grave. Please, I want you to note that this fund is lodged in a private bank here in Africa, Standard Trust Bank Africa. Once I hear from you, I will forward to you all the informations you will use to get this fund released from the bank and to be transferred to your bank account. I honestly pray that this money when transferred to you will be used for the said purpose because I have come to find out that wealth acquisition without Christ is vanity. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God, and the fellowship of God be with you and your family. Reply me on my private email address, christabelh09 at gmail.com. Thanks, and God bless you, your beloved sister in Christ, Mrs. Christabel Horst. Speech mark. Sent from my iPhone. to misery are born every morn and every night some are born to sweet delight some are born to sweet delight some are born to endless night split wine down my shirt while watching a Mexican movie in black and white while crying. I remembered Brazil, the maid who made feijoada on a Sunday 
your father's orchids, his jazz records playing out, loud as a family, drunk wine, yesterday tears. The river of January in the rain. It rained in Rio and I had the beach to myself and the endless sea. While the Brazilians stayed indoors, depressed by the weather and the lack of sun, I cast a lone figure on the horizon in board shorts, diving into the coming wave and letting the riptide drift to my body. Alongside the shoreline, a body untethered, moving out to sea. What would you do if you was president? If I was president, um, I would stop the war. I would provide like a whole lot more people with job opportunities. I would give everybody in this band that needed scholarships. I would. Yo, what would you do if you was president, Doug? I give like everybody like more scholarships that who needed them. She said scholarships. <laughs> Let me Wait, was that one financial aid? Yeah, right. My new man, I had to go back and I wish he was still here. Alright, that's what it is. So we're gonna do this song right here. If I was president, I did a lesson on Friday. Assassinated on Saturday. Buried on Sunday. And go back to work on Monday. Temperature millennials are looking for lukewarm millennials in your area. Chilly millennials are gentrifying your area. Gentrified millennials are fleeing your area. The abstract concept of millennials, commodified and misused to the point of being totally meaningless, is hanging over your area like a pale cloud that smells ever so subtly of anxiety. Anxious millennials are hacking Google Maps so that they can use their otherwise useless degree in five-dimensional hyperphysics to devise a network of wormholes so they can somehow make the 15 shitty job interviews they have scheduled this morning. Savvy millennials have been learning everything they can about your incredibly obscure hobby so they can turn it into a startup. Cynical millennials have been learning everything they can about your incredibly complex startup so they can turn it into an app. Apathetic millennials are killing startups and apps. Our hobbies to blame. Millennials are killing the hobby industry because they spend all their money on avocado frappes. Millennials are killing the avocado frappe industry. Is love to blame? Millennials want love like in Carly Rae Jepsen songs, in day glow colours, dramatically backlit in the warm summer rain, like the breathless montage at the end of a film trailer, all unimaginable ecstasy and unbearable heartbreak and nothing in between. Millennials want love that's happy to just wear slippers, and read books in silence and go to bed early. 
Millennials want Ryan Gosling to make them a cup of herbal tea and give them a cuddle. Millennials want Emma Stone to step on them, wearing a pair of stilettos that they could never afford. Millennials are having less sex than ever. Millennials are having more sex than they can reasonably handle. Millennials want monogamous codependency. Millennials want experimental polyamory. Millennials want to do roly-polies at the polo factory. Millennials want to play polo while arguing counterfactuals with Polish actors who are too busy watching Amelie to police their package holidays. Apparently. Millennials are deprived. Millennials are entitled. Entitled millennials want mental health. Could the answer be an app? Entitled millennials are demanding fewer mental health apps and more self-care hammocks. Is Jeremy Corbyn to blame? Entitled millennials feel entitled to a basically functional society, a habitable biosphere, and a piece of sourdough toast cut into the shape of a smiley face. Is Facebook to blame? Basically functional millennials are embracing aggressive whimsy to cope with the gnawing existential terror. Aggressively whimsical millennials are entrusting their darkest secrets to the Twitter accounts of various corporate brands. On-brand millennials are relishing cross-platform depression opportunities. Depressed millennials are making nihilistic podcasts. Nihilistic millennials are writing scathing poems absolutely destroying their pathetically quixotic younger selves. Pathetically quixotic millennials are furiously googling the meaning of the term quixotic. Furious millennials are going on strike from their own existence, and if you suggest that they are in any way still present on this plane of reality, you are a scab. Hmm. Obsolete millennials are shedding the rotting flakes of their exhausted carapaces and emerging into the moonlight as big sad moths. Big sad moths are fleeing this collapsing reality for a new life on the moon. Big sad moths are gentrifying your lunar village. Are millennials to blame? I dreamt I was offering tramadol to Fidel Castro. Paul Mason was heavily in my dream. At one point, he forgot all his camera equipment, so I had to carry it for him. And he also left a burger, which was still warm. I ended up eating most of it. I made a mum joke to him, and he looked sad and said his mother had just died. I felt bad. The memes are productions. Good times, good buys, peace and love. Ole! <laughs> I want to see the stippled, solid slabs and carved eyes from far below, the golden stone crown rising from behind the prominent forehead and brows towering over me. Yet here it is, in the face of a broken and castrated god, spirit subservient to relic, to provenance, standing eye to eye with me. The god is nothing but a form. I meet this god on earth. It is empty. I see a troubling and startling disappointment. It was destroyed as it was lowered and perverted in excavation. It exposes to me my absolute freedom and related aching loneliness. I want to feel like nothing. I want it to swallow me, and I want others to feel the same. I want that mandate, the direction this God should give me. I want this God to construct a connective tissue, viscous and palpable, between me and my personal, possible friends. I want this sphinx to eat my freedom. 
because my freedom hates me. My freedom is a trap. My freedom is an ever-reducing enclosure, squeezing out in an anxious ooze all possible happinesses. I am alone in a vacuum of my freedom. What happened to Ozymandias? Can't I give it my freedom? And in giving my freedom to it, it lifts the weight of my freedom from my back. It picks this stone from my shoulders. I am relieved, and my happiness returns to me. I owe it. I use it as a receptacle. In it, I put my freedom and my unconditional love. Others come up behind me. I feel their presence. They ask if I can take their picture before the broken god, eye to eye with human hubris. They stand together, and me plenty far away. Click, awkward smiles. Click, an awkward kiss beside impotent stones. I took a picture of tiny gods, tiny gods living in minuscule cages, and they leave with a barren thank you. No, I don't want to stand eye to eye with God. We are sad, drained, stunted, and alone, aching to love one thing, love one thing together. I traveled quite far, alone to see a band I'd loved so long. I've entered uneasily, painfully aware of myself as alone. I drank one, which quickly became two. Lastly, a double in my hand, sipping upward toward my head. I pushed through the sweaty others, moving away from the bar and toward the high platform stage. Others, whooping and shouting, heat rising. They accidentally scarred me over with a cigarette ash and share an intimate secrecy, bending well a joint or two. In the madness, they splash each other with drinks. They lift each other and pass each other around overhead. They kiss. They hug. They dance wildly. They are children again. They are naive and playful, a mass of disindividuation. They are diffuse identity, throbbing and undulating, steaming next to and toward the platform stage in the dark, in the haze, in the late night, or maybe it was early morning. And I feel like an outsider, not yet personally subsumed. I am engulfed. Endocytosis. I enter the mass by lightly tapping the others and squeezing by. Maybe a ghost or presence from within. I find a space for myself. Can they see I am not yet one? I am the other before them. A song breaks loose from ahead, and more passionately than before, the group surrounds me, heaving, dancing, respectful of my space. I acknowledge their kindness. I acknowledge their vigor. To this moment, to this stage, they dump a freedom. I see them appreciating one thing. I see under the stage one body, giving love to the one thing, and in turn loving one another. My loneliness becomes a happy longing. I know this playfully castrated love is possible. I am in proximity to people who love each other and together love one thing. Do I belong in this crowd of voices? Do I belong to their heart? In their hearts, to mine? Let us bask together in the lovely limitation of something. Let us be free beneath and smile lovingly in the purpose it gives us. Of production, vibe creation, vibe creation, vibe creation.
She sped, slipped, and fell hard to her knees. Her new leather walking boots were scuffed before she had left her cul-de-sac. She had noticed that the wet, soggy leaves that was once a wash of amber had now turned into a sea of slippery sycamore, waiting for their next victim. She had no time to examine her bruise. She was on a tight timeline. Car smoke that stuck to one's throat. Passengers waiting impatiently as plane after plane lands. Scarf off, scarf on, hat on, hat off. Buying that unusual lime green ice cream because she could, she must, and so she ate without even tasting it. She was tired, carrying her extremely organised bag on her back, and the thought of taking off those new walking boots was just too much to bear. She dried herself from her salty sweat with a thin, crisp kangaroo print handkerchief, and her bed for the night was not too far away. An oasis tucked in a canyon. Oh, it was getting dark, and she felt that fear, that lingering texture in the air, knowing she was alone and in a place that was so far away from home. Pulled the short, dusky blonde hair from her eyes, and she looked up and thought. When that dark, inky sky with its speckled bright lights looks back at you, all is perfect, all is fine. Relaxed. She made a fire, small enough to cook and to keep warm, ate a warm packet of oats and crawled into her tent. And so she slept. There was nothing else to do but rest and be. Morning came and her eyes could properly examine her landscape. Moroccan dunes. Nearby camels drinking at the oasis and the rare visitor smiling at her as she sat looking into the distance, near her compact base camp. Wait. Oh, it was time to put on those shoes. She turned them upside down to examine her bruise and heel all at the same time. Flecks of golden crumpled leaf fell onto her bruised scuffed knee and onto the floor. Yellow met yellow, golden met amber. Sand met leaf, desert met sycamore. Comforted by witnessing such unimportant greetings of land meeting land, she was happy to see how boot leaf blended in so well with the Moroccan sands. It tossed and turned as the light and wind examined its new encounter. What looked like a soggy, sad, unloved Scottish leaf was now accepted into the fate of the Moroccan winds. Now her journey began. Production is made from 100% British beef. The memes of production, the one sane anchor in this raging sea of false belief. The memes of production, oven ready memes. The memes of production, please listen responsibly. The Memes of Production is a thinking whose products are the real. Utility, frustration, static, stasis, the yearning, the aching, the desperate need for stimulation and excitement, with nothing to do but stay indoors, 
drink heavily and just hope things improve. Don't you just want to drop a gram of MDMA and dance and hug with your friends in a field, dancing to pounding beats? Endless new pointless laws and measures that don't seem to make any difference. Mainstream politics is a dead zone. Will anything ever improve? Are we trapped inside this idiotic spectacle forever with buffoons in charge? Can we hope for anything greater than mere competence from bland technocrats in place of egotistical rapists and fascists? Are these really the only two options for how a society could function? Can we not dream of bigger and better horizons? Is there any hope at all? I offer up this to the world without irony. A prayer for a better future. For stability. Prosperity. Equality. Social justice. Reparations. Cooperation. Collaboration. For peace. Unity and love. classically trained actor. Alleged assailant says he's not crazy. Tom Sharp in the New Mexican, Saturday, September the 20th, 2008. With a punk-style hairdo, a wisp of facial hair, and a usually serious demeanor, Kazuki Arano didn't look like the kind of guy who could have plunged a knife into someone's leg. During an interview Tuesday at the county jail, Hirano was thin and drawn in his orange jail jumpsuit as he read from his carefully crafted notes, struggled with the English language and explained that his closest relative, his 65-year-old mother in Japan, is unable to help him. The 34-year-old ex-laborer from Yokohama, Japan, has been jailed since April the 2nd for allegedly stabbing Rupert Sheldrake a British biologist famous for his experiments in mental telepathy. In telephone conversations, letters, and two interviews at the Santa Fe County Jail, Hirano has insisted he is a guinea pig in Sheldrake's mind control experiments using remote mental telepathy. Hirano said he became convinced his thoughts were being controlled four or five years ago when he began to feel hypnotised while he was homeless in the Camden Town District of London. He said a man named Dr Tony in London's Stockwell District told him Sheldrake was conducting experiments in mind control on the homeless. Harano said he didn't believe this at first, but came to accept it after reading about Sheldrake on the internet. He said he now believes the American military is developing remote mental telepathy to combat terrorism. Harano said he quit his labor job in Yokohama earlier this year and traveled to Santa Fe to attend the 10th International Conference on Science and Consciousness at La Fonda to ask Sheldrake and others there how to block mental telepathy. I'm asking him how to stop telepathy remote, he said. He is kind of lying to me and he is laughing and kind of smiling like he looks at me stupid and then walks away. Hirano said others at the conference advised him to try Tai Chi and other Chinese practices that are spiritual but not very scientific, 
He said he suspects no one will tell him how to block mental telepathy because they are making money from the experiments. The degree to which his mind is controlled varies in intensity, Harano said. Asked if he stabbed Sheldrake, Harano avoided a straight answer, apparently aware that he should not admit guilt, but insisted he wasn't thinking about stabbing anyone when he carried a hunting knife into the conference. Sheldrake is very paranoid and scared of someone to hurt him or kill him, or maybe I'm going to do it, but I am not, and I think no one will hurt him, he said. Hirano said he just wants to go home to Japan. If he is released, he said he will leave Sheldrake alone and begin to investigate on his own how to block mental telepathy. So I don't go to any place Sheldrake is doing something. It's kind of wasting my time. Better to find out what I can, get a job, and finish my problem. I don't want to have a problem with him. He added that if he can prove Sheldrake is really doing terrible things and testing the public, and I can find out how to block it, I'll put it on the internet. that sets in motion a lot of the Vallis stuff. Um, he, he even thinks back to earlier times when he was a kid and advertisements he saw that had a fish in them. And, you know, you start to see the way that he came to believe that he was already kind of programmed to recognize the fish symbol when he finally saw it on the delivery woman in 1974 because he had earlier been exposed to these other fish, these other fish, 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 these other fish, these other fish, other fish, other fish, fish sign encounter, fish sign encounter, fish sign encounter, fish sign encounter, This vote was decided by a fair and open election conducted on the White House website. This was a fair election. Unfortunately, Carrots refused to concede and demanded a recount, and we're still fighting with Carrots. 
And I will tell you, we've come to a conclusion. Carrots, I'm sorry to tell you, the result did not change. It's too bad for carrots. Hey there, uh, it's recently come to my attention that Carl's Jr. wants to rename the charbroiled sliders Spielbergers, and they're pretty good, uh, but I, I, I'm passing. Cease and desist, can't do it, sorry. The world is a totally evil place. It'll kill you. It doesn't matter what your dreams and hopes and ambitions are. It doesn't matter if you have a new boyfriend or a new girlfriend or you've got plans for the future. You can forget those plans because you're going to wind up dead. We talked about this in, in, in San Francisco. It's all about... Well, you know, gay, gay, gay bathhouses and everything. It's all about round-the-clock sex. It's all... Come on, man. Come on, man. Gay, gay, gay bathhouses. Round-the-clock sex. Round-the-clock sex. Family steal the round election. The, the media's covering up. Sex. The Biden crime family steal this election. The media's covering it up. The Biden crime family steal this election. The media's covering up. We want our freedom for the world. Use our freedom, Joe Biden. Joe Biden is covering up this election. He's stealing that. Gay, gay, gay bathhouses. Gay, gay, gay bathhouses. Come on, man. Come on, man. We talked about this in, in, in San Francisco. It's all about gay, gay, gay bathhouses. 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 I believe America's for free people. I, I believe in monster energy on, drinks, man. freedom, and the American flag. Come Drive on, my man. car and burning gas. with a podcast. Laura was bored at work. Her lower body felt numb from sitting on a poorly designed office chair for six hours. She pondered what she might do that evening, but already she knew she would get home, put a ready meal in the microwave, smoke a spliff, and then finish an animated Netflix series about a talking cupcake before falling asleep on the sofa. Laura envied the world the cartoon characters inhabited, how each week's conundrum would be resolved by the end of the episode. She envied the warm, bright colours and soothing moods, but that wasn't her life. She lived in Britain, where everything was awful. Every aspect of her life felt so predictable and mechanical. As she began down a familiar track of self-pity and gloom, she remembered there was a party this weekend with her friend, Hannah, who she hadn't seen for a long time. That was something. Friday night soon came around, and Laura arrived at the party. As the front door opened, she was hit by an oral barrage of pounding techno. The flat was rammed with a mass of sweaty bodices. As she moved from room to room, there were a lot of people she didn't recognise. Confident, outgoing, attractive people. Laura felt nervous and awkward. Her friend Hannah had a huge network of friends from all types of backgrounds. Her parties were a melting pot of people from different groups and classes who would never normally mix. Some of them could be extremely eccentric and unusual. Hannah was a manager for a consulting firm and a hardcore raver at weekends. The two of them had met at a music festival and spent several hours together in someone's tent doing lines and bonding. A few years earlier, there had been raves, parties, and festivals on a regular basis. But as Laura had gotten older, her friendship groups had fractured and drifted apart as people settled down to have children and put their hedonistic ways behind them. Despite being at the party for several minutes, Laura had yet to see Hannah at all. And suddenly she appeared, looking very toned and slightly manic. 
the look of someone who had been taking multiple uppers for many hours. Hannah slowly made her way across the packed living room. Having so many friends and acquaintances, she had little time to speak to anyone in depth. Everyone got about a minute to briefly catch up, then she would move on. Hi, oh my god, so nice to see you, how are you? said Hannah to Laura, her face beaming and sweating intensely. They embraced and then Laura pondered whether to say she was fine or to be more truthful about feeling stuck in a rut. But before she could speak, Hannah asked, do you need any drugs? Oh, yes please, said Laura. Hannah took out two capsules of MDMA from her pocket and passed them over. These are so strong. Biscuit brought them. Biscuit, asked Laura, racking her brain for what this was a reference to. You know, Mark from Hull, my dealer. He wants eight dog biscuits for a bed. I'm sure you were there. Laura laughed. She tried to cast her mind back to parties of the past, but nothing came up. Hannah was already losing interest. Anyway, lovely to see you. Catch up later, she said, rubbing Laura's arm. And then she was gone. Once again, Laura was alone at the party. She looked down at the capsules in her hand and without thinking, just swallowed both, followed by a swig of water. Conventional wisdom would say take one and wait for it to peak and then take another. But Laura felt impatient and wanted to feel comfortable and start having fun as quickly as possible. After a few minutes, Laura started to feel more relaxed. She allowed herself to slowly sway with the music and someone offered her a joint, which she accepted. The mood of the party began to change and transition. A different person took over the decks and the music switched from hard techno to more melodic house. A number of people seemed to even out too as a large group left to go to a club night in town. A few people were cheering together in the centre of the living room, and Laura had joined them. There was cheering, whooping, hugging. Suddenly, social interaction didn't seem so difficult. The mass of strangers now seemed warm and inviting. For the first time in months, Laura didn't feel too bad about things. Her job was fairly boring, but at least she had one, she thought to herself. Her best friend from school had been unemployed for eight months now, and had spiralled into an even greater depression in a very public fashion on Facebook. Everyone had their arms around each other and were dancing together in a circle, kicking their legs in and out. The music reached a crescendo. Laura's vision was blurry and she couldn't stop talking. She was overwhelmed with euphoria and for a brief moment, life felt transcendentally wonderful. Laura made her way over to the kitchen to get more water. As she refilled her glass, she noticed a man on the other side of the room. He was standing between two group conversations, but was silent. He stood very upright, very good posture, broad shoulders. He had a neatly trimmed beard, and his arms were folded. Laura didn't recognise him. Suddenly, he looked over and caught her gaze. He fixed her with an intense stare. Hi, she said to him, blushing. Hello, he replied. Laura slowly awoke mid-afternoon on Sunday. Sunlight was breaking through the gaps of her curtains. Her mouth tasted of ash and her head throbbed relentlessly. Laura's memory of the last 48 hours was hazy. The only thing she was certain of was the vast quantities of drugs and alcohol that had been consumed by herself and seemingly everyone else in attendance. The party had continued throughout Friday evening and well into the next day. Laura vaguely recollected getting a cab home around 11pm on Saturday. She had meant to catch up with Hannah properly, but never got the chance. Thankfully, new connections had been forged. Suddenly, her phone buzzed with a text message. It said it was from a Rob. What the hell is that for, Laura? It read, Great to meet you, Laura. Are you still okay to appear on my podcast tomorrow evening? Laura had no memory of agreeing to this. She cast her mind back to the party. Rob must be the man from the kitchen. They had chatted a while and she had been intrigued by him, clearly enough to save his number. And she had danced a frantic techno in the living room 
faintly recalled trying to get him to join in, but he had declined and just stood at the side, watching her closely. Then they spent some time together on the sofa. Laura felt exhausted. She replied that it was nice to meet him too, she was still up for it, and she made a mental note to look at Rob and his podcast before Monday evening, then went back to sleep. demanded be dealt with swiftly. Laura had to work through her lunch break. Rob and his podcast completely slipped her mind. When she arrived home, she felt close to death. She napped for a couple of hours and awoke at 7.48pm. The podcast chat was at 8pm. She quickly tidied herself up and touched up her face. Laura sat at the kitchen table, opened her laptop and clicked the Zoom link she'd been sent. After a moment, Rob's face appeared. His webcam angle was very unflattering. His face looked distorted and misshapen. Hi, how are you? said Laura, smiling. Fine, thanks, said Rob, coldly. Let's get started right away, just waiting for the guys. The guys? asked Laura. Suddenly, three new boxes appeared on screen in rapid succession. In each box was another white man with a thick, bushy beard and vacant eyes. Their names were Ryan, Jared and Austin. Laura felt self-conscious. She had thought it would just be the two of them. Rob went straight into his introductory podcast spiel. Please check out our Patreon, rate and review us on iTunes, etc. The name of the podcast sounded suspect to Laura. Mackin, Slackin, Yakin, a mountaintop for men. Laura quickly googled this, and there it was at the top of the search. Next to the name it said in brackets, formerly the Chick Whisperers. Laura couldn't decide which name was worse. Mackin Slackin Yakin is just four dudes who want to get laid, and we want you, the listener, to do the same, said Rob. Alarm bells started ringing in Laura's head. This week we're talking social dynamics and the inherent female attraction to alpha males and how this relates back to hunter-gatherer societies, said Rob. Laura froze. She suddenly remembered a huge chunk of their conversation at the party. She had been very frank and candid. The two of them had sat together on a sofa. She had talked in great detail about how at times in her life, when she was younger, she had gravitated towards a certain type of macho guy. Laura had found Rob's presence strangely compelling. She had felt vulnerable and that she could trust him, and fueled by the overwhelming euphoria of the MDMA, she had talked and talked. Everything that had been bottled up inside her those last few months it was like a dam had burst, and now it all came pouring out at high velocity. She told him about when there were two guys who were both after her. One of them was quiet and shy, but nice, while the other was loud and obnoxious. She knew the quieter guy respected her, and they had good conversations together. But the other guy was great at sex and was very well endowed, so she would always end up back at his place. Laura suddenly remembered Rob's face when she was saying this. He was captivated. She recalled him writing this down on his phone as though he had struck gold. He was staring and listening intently, nodding along in fascination. It was everything he wanted to hear. With every word, Laura was confirming every aspect of his worldview right back to him. Then Laura added this is when she was younger, clueless and insecure, with very low self-esteem, when she didn't have any self-respect and would let guys treat her badly. Rob wasn't interested in that part. Laura lamented she had felt so bored and so alone 
just wanted someone to connect with. She remembered leaning her head against Rob's shoulder as they sat together. She wondered if he had been drunk or taken any drugs at all, or if he was just watching, listening and probing her clinically the entire time, like a scientist looking through a microscope. She snapped back to reality. The four hosts had been talking, she hadn't taken any of it in. Her mind was racing. Nora, do you mind repeating that story you told me about the two guys pursuing you, said Rob. The Alpha and the Beta. You guys will love this. Nora's heart was pounding. She felt short of breath. This was what he wanted her on the podcast for. To spill all her deepest secrets onto a permanent audio recording and have it uploaded to the web and made accessible to the entire world. It was one thing for the four male hosts to discuss this every week, but having it spoken by an actual woman gave it a validity and weight they could never match. The four boxes of each of the men's faces filled her laptop screen. All of them were looking straight at her, watching and listening patiently, excited for her to speak. One of them had a cartoonishly stupid face with bulging eyes. Another had a very contrived goatee, shaved to perfection with triangular edges. Laura realised she hadn't said a word since the start of the conversation. Laura? Laura, said Rob, giving a prompt. Silence. Several more seconds passed. Then, with a sudden burst of energy, Laura slammed the laptop shut. Her whole body recoiled in disgust, and she let out a piercing shriek. She felt consumed with rage, that she'd been used and betrayed. She had made herself vulnerable, as a recent self-help book suggested, but it hadn't made her feel stronger. Instead, there was just a deep sense of shame and embarrassment. She let out another piercing scream, and stopped herself in case the neighbours heard. Laura tried to remember a breathing technique to calm herself, breathing in through her nose and out through her mouth. She slowly settled into it and felt her heart rate easing off. She closed her eyes and imagined herself in a warm bath. And she pulled out the plug, and slowly and surely as the water flowed away, she too was taken down the drain and away from this world forever.
happy days. Yeah, yeah, happy days. Yeah, 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 yeah. Happy days. Yeah, yeah, happy days. <laughs>